So, today, this afternoon, at the end of the week, we come to the final guided meditation in this cycle of the Four Immeasurables. We return, of course, to equanimity. And I'd just like to, to re refresh your memory of this statement in the seven-point mind training, that when we take notice of other people's faults, uh, that the counsel, the advice from Atisha, is to view all the faults of other people as our own, as our own. From the Buddha's perspective, then whatever we see people doing, whether it's genocide, whether it's ethnic cleansing, whatever, it's robbery, it's murder, or what have you, whatever we see other people doing, uh, the chances are extremely likely that we have done the same thing in some past life. And whether or not, and most of those things we've not done in this life, quite clearly, that's why we're not in jail. Um, but the qualities, the qualities that arouse, that is the mental afflictions that arouse really harmful behavior, uh, I think we can easily imagine them because we've experienced facsimiles of them ourselves. And so, as I mentioned before, the, the, the metaphor that I think is very useful is like we are, each of us is an, like an artist who is painting our portraits of other people, but we're painting only from our own palette of colors. And so if a person out there displays qualities or has internal qualities that we've never experienced and cannot imagine, well, when we think of that person, it won't unfortunately come up as kind of a black hole, you know. It will, will fill it in. So if it's, you know, some extraordinarily highly realized yogi who has experiences and, and depths of compassion and wisdom insi insight and maybe paranormal abilities and so forth that we just have no idea about, well, we'll still think of the yogi, but then we'll paint the yogi with our colors and bring him down a few notches, right? We'll paint him in a facsimile of ourselves. That's what we do. And likewise, when we, we may encounter people, we, we may learn about them in the media and so forth, who do utterly grotesque things. These poor misguided souls in China who stab children. Well, this is very, very far from anything any of us here would do at the same time, and so perhaps it's beyond imagination, but when we try to imagine it, we'll imagine it in terms of something that does make sense. And so once again, we paint, we paint the portraits. So this background insight, I think, is very helpful as we return to the meditative cultivation of equanimity. And this time, we will also bring in really the, the sharp edge, the, the sharp edge of the sword of wisdom in terms of the insight, the yeah, meditation on identitylessness, and that is whether it's a person that we find enormously attractive, we like a whole lot, uh, that we really have a lot of attachment to, or just the opposite. Either way, the insight here, and I think it's a very profound and transformative one, is that there is no such person out there as this self-existent, individuated ego that is intrinsically likable or intrinsically not likable. So to break through that, to break through this encrustation, this reification of others as being by nature of this sort of person, that sort of person, is really crucial for the meditative cultivation of equanimity. So that's what I thought we'd do this afternoon. And looking ahead, of course, tomorrow we, we have time just for all-day practice. But I thought perhaps, I was thinking maybe on Monday to kind of just leave it as a straight hands-up vote to see whether you'd like me to, be, would be content for me to discontinue the guided meditations, or to continue and just say yes or no. I really have no preference whatsoever. I mean, if I have a preference, it's to be quiet, but I'm not here just to be quiet. Um, because after all, whenever, we are, whenever we're participating in a guided meditation, it, is, it does entail kind of a multitasking. 
on the one hand, we're here to meditate. On the other hand, you're listening to somebody talk. So you're going back and forth between your meditation and listening to somebody talk. And that is a multitasking, which means the mind is not single-pointed. It's not completely gathered and collected together. Uh, which means there is a point, just like counting the breaths, there is a point, certainly, at which the guided meditations are going to be more of a distraction than a help. And that's just true, right? Uh, but I thought perhaps, uh, perhaps a middle ground next week, and we'll just take this week by week or cycle by cycle, is perhaps, um, and really I don't have any strong preference here, so why don't we just do a vote right now? Why not? But I thought maybe something of middle ground just for the next cycle uh, would be maybe to have the guided meditations again, but now with maybe one half or so of the verbiage, just the words. So just a reminder here and let you, with hopefully more stable minds than you had three or four weeks ago, let you fill it in and maintain the continuity, and I'm there to provide more of a, more like punctuation marks rather than a whole script. Okay? So, again, I don't even have a preference for that. <laughs> but I thought maybe that would be something that would be uh, equally satisfactory to people who would really like to be just in silence as opposed to those who would really like more guidance. So, again, you're not going to my, hurt my feelings no matter what. Uh, what do you think about that? How, how, what do you think about that so-called middle ground? Maybe it's not a middle ground at all. But does that sound good? Hands up for, okay, that's overwhelming. Let's do that then. Sounds good. But it will be fewer, I think for everybody's relief, it'll be fewer words. Because actual, actual uh, you won't believe this, but actually I really enjoy silence. <laughs> I'll try to persuade you. I'll try to back that up with, uh, you know, some experience here. But enough said. Let's go into the practice, and I will try, as always, to try to find a middle way of not too much words and not so few that you just have, get no help. so many ways the word balance characterizes the nature of the path from the very beginning all the way to the very culmination of the path to non-abiding enlightenment neither tipping over into samsara nor tipping over into nirvana utter balance so as at the culmination of the path so at the beginning balance is the way but settle the body in a state of balance, in its natural state, poised between an ever-deepening sense of relaxation and a posture of vigilance, sustained with stillness.
that similar spirit settle your respiration in its natural rhythm as you balance this inner commentary in a state of effortless silence, neither babbling on nor forcefully constrained, resting your inner voice in a state of equilibrium. Poised to think when it's useful, remaining silent when no thought is necessary. Settle your mind in a state of equipoise for a little while by practicing mindfulness of breathing in any of the three ways that you find most helpful. Then as we venture into the meditative cultivation of equanimity, I would offer you two options. One is to direct, direct your attention outwards, that is to other people. The other is to direct your attention to different manifestations of yourself. 
times when you really like yourself, you feel comfortable with yourself, feel a sense of self-value and self-worth, and other occasions when it's quite the opposite. So you may continue in this practice entirely internally to bring about a greater sense of equanimity, releasing the I-it relationship with respect to yourself, which would, be, which would be a great stride forward. Or you may attend to actual other people, as you wish, whatever is most helpful. Bring to mind, first of all, if you will, a person for whom you feel strong attachment, a strong sense of dependence, a sense that this person's presence in your life is really crucial for your own well-being. You might even feel, I couldn't be happy without this person. You may even feel that pers this person is the source of your happiness. Bring to mind this person's attractive qualities, the behavior that has so endeared this person to you, or made you so dependent upon this individual. Whatever is the basis for your attachment to the person, make it conscious, arouse it, and arouse the attachment itself. Insofar as your feelings for this person are indeed ones of attachment, while in all likelihood it's a mixture, a blend of attachment and genuine caring for this other person as an individual, but insofar as attachment is present, by its very definition it's rooted in delusion, in a misapprehension of this person. Cut through the delusion. As you attend to the various attributes, qualities, modes of behavior that make this person so attractive, so important to you, so important to your well-being, note one by one that none of these appearances to your own mind is a person. None of these is someone looking back at you. <laughs> <laughs> 
They are, in fact, appearances to your mind. Who is this intrinsically likable person, attractive, desirable person, apart from the appearances? Bearing in mind, appearances come and go, they are shifting every single moment. Having observed your own minds while settling the mind, you know the constant flux and flow, the ever-changing cinema that is your mind. And as this is true of your mind, so must it be true for this person, for this person's behavior. Constant flux. of all these changing appearances, there is someone there, just as there is someone where you are. It is not true that there is simply no self whatsoever, that people don't exist. This is foolishness. Attend now to the person who is there, beyond the appearances, person who, like yourself, wishes for happiness and freedom from suffering. And breathe out. Breathe out the aspiration of loving-kindness. May you, like myself, be well and happy. And with each out-breath, imagine this to become so.
allow the appearance of this person to fade back into the space of the mind. And then bring to mind, if you can, someone you find quite disagreeable, maybe intensely so. It could be a person from the world stage, a person who appears in the media, who's done great evil in the world, acts with great malice, with other mental afflictions. It could be somebody in your own life who has harmed you, harmed other people. It may be a person towards whom you feel morally superior as you hold this person in contempt. Bring this person vividly to mind and reflect upon those qualities and behavior that have aroused this response in you and allow that response to be aroused. As we bring this person to mind, it's as if we bring someone to mind whose, whose clothing we abhor or just find to be in very bad taste and dislike the person for the clothing. Anybody who dresses like that, terrible. But clothing comes and goes and the person you've brought to mind is changing clothes every moment as thoughts and emotions, memories and desires, all ever-changing from moment to moment, and therefore behavior also changing, and one moment kind, another, motion, another moment simply neutral, another moment behavior dominated by mental affliction, all in flux. But nowhere is there an intrinsic person who is by very nature contemptible beyond hope. This is purely a projection. Realizing the emptiness of such an intrinsic identity that is disagreeable, deplorable, Look through the fiction created by your own mind and attend with the power of imagination to the person who is actually there, who wakes up each morning and goes about his or her life trying to find happiness and avoid suffering and doing the best they can. And 
as you look beyond the veil of appearances, with each in-breath arouse the heart of compassion. May you be free of suffering and free of the causes of suffering. May you, like myself, find peace and serenity. And with each in-breath, imagine this veil of darkness, of mental afflictions and their consequences, lifting, dissipating. Imagine this person coming to balance, to equanimity, free of the turbulence of mental afflictions. Now, for a very little while, expand the field of your awareness. To everyone in this room, and then in expanding concentric circles with each out-breath. Send out your aspirations of loving-kindness that each one here and each one around us, human and non-human alike, 
agreeable and disagreeable, old and young, beautiful and unattractive, however they may appear. May each one be well and happy. And then for just a moment, release all appearances and objects to the mind and release your mind. Let it dissolve, let it melt into simple awareness here and now, illuminating its own nature. Let's bring the session to a close. So, you'll see something as unprecedented has happened since the beginning of the retreat. I have no written questions. Uh, there was one a note from, from, from you, Daniela, and I've responded to it. So I put the, bullet, the note back up on the board. Uh, but I would suggest this is Anitzepel and this is Daniela. I think we could help each other. So why don't you have a conversation? Okay? Jolly good. <laughs> 
Lasso, well, it's only five after five. We, you know, there's no, no law that says we have to stay here until six o'clock. But if there are questions or comments, insights you'd like to share? Okay, I will try. <laughs> I couldn't quite hear. I will try. You okay. Are. Okay. Um, I understood that the four immeasurables, it's not a practice for training the attention, but a practice for cleaning the obscurations in our practice. For cleaning? Cleaning the obscurations. C clearing out the obscurations, obscuration. yes. Uh -huh. So, our object of meditation is not, I mean, imagine the, the, the mash or the person or whatever, is the feeling, is the motion itself, love, compassion, etc. Not really. Not really. Well, Shall I, I jump understood in? that. Shall so, I jump in now or so, would you like to continue? Because if, if it's if it, so, yes. my question is, yes. if I can train the emotion without all that um, discursive meditation, I I just arousing the, the, the right. feeling, a love, compassion, everything, right. um, paying attention to that, yes. even if it's not only punctuality, I mean, even if it's just arousing the feeling, arousing the feeling, Yes. And that's, that's all. Yeah. That's okay, good. A correction, but um, it's a correction, but not, oh, are you wrong? It's a correction as in a modification. Okay? And then I'll respond to the, the explicit question, which once again is a very rich one and very heartfelt one. Uh, number one, is it the case that these four measurables are not really designed to develop the attention and so forth? They're really something to clear the obstacles. As it turns out, it is possible to achieve jhana in loving kindness. Is it possible to achieve the second jhana? And I won't try to give all the details of it, but the first and second jhana, you can achieve shamatha in loving kindness. You can achieve, in fact, any four of the four measurables. You can achieve shamatha in any of the four, four measurables. You can achieve the first, second, at least the first and second jhanas in any of the four measurables. So, in fact, in Buddha's, Buddha Gosa's classic treatise, The Path of Purification, or Visuddhimagga, the the teachings on the four measurables, or Brahma-viharas, Brahma-viharas, divine abidings, come in the section of Samadhi. And that's exactly where they should be. When you look at the large framework of Buddhist practice, the path, we have ethics, or shila, we have Samadhi, and then we have Prajna, or wisdom. So, of course, the teachings on four measurables are not explicitly wisdom practices. They're not just ethics, they are in the category of samadhi. But as it turns out, and he gives very detailed ex explanations of actually how to develop and to achieve jhana, or achieve shamatha and on into the jhanas, by way of each of the four Ramaviharas. So they can be. Now, why haven't, why haven't I been just teaching then that there are seven methods for achieving shamatha? I've been teaching the three that we're all familiar with, and then I've been teaching the four measurables as if they're something complementary. Um, why not just teach them all as shamatha? Well, one could. One could. Uh, what I found through teaching over these what, 30, what, 34 years by now, is that overall, to really develop these qualities of relaxation, stability, and vividness, it's just more effective for, more, for most people. And I, can't, I will not say for everybody, but for people I've taught, and through my own practice, for developing the attention skills themselves. Relaxation, stability, vividness. These three methods that I've been emphasizing, I found overall to be the most effective, quite simply. How do you, let's just take one example, loving kindness. Is it possible to achieve shamatha with loving the cultivation of metta or maitri as your method? The answer is yes. 
Clearly, yes. How do you do it? This is, a, this is where I would correct you. And that is the object. When meditatively cultivating, let's just sit, focus on loving kindness for the, for the time being. Is the object the feeling or the emotion? The answer is no, it's not. There, when you cultivate, when you experience loving kindness, is there a feeling or an emotion? Of course. But bear in mind, loving kindness is not a feeling or an emotion, it is an aspiration. It's a heartfelt and emotive aspiration. It's not like, oh, I think I'd like some water. It's not neutral like that. I want it, but, well, I don't really... There's not much feeling around that. I think, I'll, I'd, like a, I think I'd like a sip, you know, so I want some. That was an aspiration, but there was really zero, zero feeling or kind of emotion around it. So the, the aspiration, the, the desire, the yearning of loving-kindness clearly comes with heart, with feeling, with an emotion, a real warmth, a sense of affection, and so forth. But the loving-kindness itself is an aspiration. It's a yearning. If there's just the feeling of like, just a general feeling of affection, of warmth, but if it just remains that and doesn't, arou doesn't arouse to an actual aspiration, then we would say that is the, the fertile ground in which loving-kindness may arise. Just as, and I think this is not a bad analogy, just as attending to another person's difficulties with a great deal of empathy, with sympathy, a real feeling with, genuinely, I mean, just sharing their, their difficulty, their, their challenge, their distress, that's not compassion but it's very fertile ground in which compassion may arise. All right? So, loving-kindness is not an emotion, it's an aspiration. Compassion is not an emotion, it's an aspiration. Equanimity is not simply a feeling, but it is, a, it is the openness of the heart in terms of equally caring about whoever we encounter. One wonderful phrase, I'm, I'm going on a bit, but I think this little point is really helpful. I don't remember whether I've mentioned it before in this retreat, but with, I think I, maybe I did once, but a reminder's not bad. That is, the abbot in this monastery where I trained about 35, 36 years ago, Gyanlo Sangyatso, when I asked him, what do you mean by all sentient beings? When I say, I want to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, who are all sentient beings? What shall I bring to mind? What shall I bring to mind when all sentient beings? Seven billion human beings? How many billion animals? How many billions of people on other planets and other galaxies? Am I really to try to imagine what I can't even imagine when I say all sentient beings? It gets so abstract, almost vacuous, you know. And then we get the, then we get the jokes. I love all sentient beings. It's just you I don't like, and I, can't, can't, don't, and I really don't care much, and I don't like you much either. But all sentient beings I really love. But the people here I don't like much, <laughs> you know. <laughs> then we get into a joke real quickly, you know, because what we like is an idea. And so, but what Gen Losangazo said that I found so practically helpful was he, when I said, what shall I bring to mind when I think of all sentient beings? And he said, all sentient beings are every individual you encounter from day to day, either directly or in your imagination. Well, I'm not going to be thinking of seven billion individuals on any day, but I will probably encounter through direct experience or certainly through memory and imagination. I'll encounter a wide variety of people and having that equal sense of loving, of compassion for each one. That is practically all sentient beings. So, what is the object of... And empathetic joy, I'd have to say that's an emotion. Empathetic joy, I think, is an emotion. 
It's a taking delight in others' joys, their virtues, and so forth. Having said that, though, it is interesting to see how in the Tibetan tradition, rooted in India, of course, how in, in the Tibetan liturgy, how this empathetic joy is expressed. It's interesting. I don't think it's widely known unless you've been right, reciting Tibetan liturgy in English translation. But the, the short liturgy for loving kindness is may all sentient beings, and I will simply say we, may we all find happiness in the causes of happiness, loving kindness. That's an aspiration. May we, may it be so. May we all be free of suffering and the cause of the suffering. That's an aspiration. But then, may we all never be parted from happiness and its causes. That once again turns into an aspiration. May we not be parted. And that is, I'm taking delight in your happiness, your virtues, your joys. May, we not, may you not be parted from that, which you're enjoying. And then finally, equanimity in the Tibetan liturgy, Indo-Tibetan, also manifests as an aspiration. May we all be free of attachment to those who are near and aversion. Actually, I'll rephrase it, retranslate it. May we all dwell in equanimity, free of attachment to those who are near and to aversion or hostility to those who are far. That too winds up being an aspiration. So in the Tibetan liturgy, it's all, it's 100% aspiration. Now, to come into your, it's a very rich, rich question, that's why I'm coming in from different sides. We can ask this question now. And I want to open this back to you, Anna, because I want you to reconsider. But everyone here, when you're practicing loving kindness, and here's a, a very important question. It's a quiz, but it's a very important one. Getting the right answer is actually very important. It's not just, you know, now you get an A on your Buddhist exam. What is the object of meditation? I don't like the word much, but where are, I'll put it this way, where are you directing your attention? Where are you directing your attention when you're cultivating loving kindness? Where does your attention alight? Where is it directed? I'm thinking, what do you... If I use a, a pronoun, I'm going to give it away. Sentient beings. Anil is a good scholar as well as practitioner. You're directing your attention to sentient beings. What is the object of loving kindness? Sentient beings. What is the object of compassion? Sentient beings. The object of empathetic joy? Sentient beings. Equanimity? Sentient beings. And so we're attending to sentient beings by way of the imagery that we bring to mind. And we know we can do this. You're all now old hands at settling the mind in its natural state. Right? And so right now, if I invited you to, in fact, I'm going to invite you to. Right now, this will be 30 seconds. You don't have to change position. But first of all, I invite you, bring to mind a mental image of someone you know well. It could be your mother. Just bring to mind the mental image. And now let's imagine it's a mental image of your mother. And now think about your mother. The person, your mother. Now that was very short, but I would hope the experience was different. One's looking at a snapshot. It's looking at an image, an appearance. That's not a person, it's an appearance. But when you think about your mother, if you've had, hopefully, and not everyone does, but if you've had a very nurturing and loving mother and you think about her, you, you immediately feel something in your heart. Not necessarily just seeing the snapshot, but when you think about your mother, think about anyone who you really deeply cherish and love and care for. When you think about such a person, you, f you feel it here, right? 
And then you think, well, you should bring, bring the image to mind. Well, yeah, my mother has you know, light brown hair, and she's elderly, and she has a very pleasant expression. Yeah, that's, that's the image, all right, you know. And so we are using images in the cultivation of loving-kindness. We're using images as a way to attend to the sentient beings, to people or non-human sentient beings. So the object, where we're, the whom, whom, and that's why I didn't want to say that, that would give away the answer, but whom are we directing our attention to? Not what, but whom are we directing our attention to? To sentient beings, right? And likewise for compassion. So we are directing our attention to sentient beings with the yearning, may you, sentient being, you, as we direct it inwardly to ourselves, you, my mother, you, my brother, you, my next-door neighbor, my teacher, the people who bring us the food and cook it and clean and all of that, may you find the happiness you are seeking and may you cultivate the causes of such happiness. We're tending to, in this case, the people by way of our images, our recollections, our memories of them. And likewise, when we attend to people who are in distress, who are suffering from one reason or another, we bring to mind our memories, the images and so forth, and we use them as a way to attend to the people themselves. And likewise, empathetic joy and equanimity. So the object is sentient beings. Now, here is the right. Your, your question, as usual, is very rich. And on this point, I'd like to end my response. And that is, because I think what you're getting at, I'm, I'm going to intuit, maybe I'm guessing entirely wrong, but I think I know you. We're friends so for some years now. I think I know what you're getting at. And what you're getting at is exactly right. But I wanted to add these comments for the sake of clarity. I think what you're getting at is might it be possible simply to tap into the loving-kindness itself without the imagery, without conjuring up images of people and memories, and conjuring up, try, conjuring up is maybe too pejorative a term, but try, without trying to generate, without trying to bring forth something, and have these images and appearances and memories and so forth, trying to kickstart it, you know? But what about just allowing it to arise and then nurturing it rather than trying to enforce it, develop it, generate it. And what we're into now, up to our waist, is the differences of the discovery and the developmental approaches. So we know this well with respect to shamatha. Mindfulness of breathing or especially focusing on a, a mental image, let's say, of a Buddha. Focusing on generating an image of the Buddha generating that and the developing stability and vividness with respect to an image of the Buddha. That is really a flat-out developmental approach. Because you're not going to discover the Buddha there. You have to generate that image. And if you don't, well, it's just not there, right? You generate it and you develop stability and you stabilize it and then you clarify it and you add more detail to it and you stabilize that. And that's a very developmental approach. And it's worked superbly for many, many people. On the other hand, a practice, and that's kind of like one, one end of the spectrum of a developmental approach. If we take awareness of awareness, where you're just resting in that sheer luminosity as effortlessly as you can, non-conceptually, resting there, it's much more like discovering shamatha. Because what are the qualities of shamatha? Well, upon the basis of relaxation, well, this is really relaxed. But shamatha, what are the qualities? Stability, and the Tibetan word necha, is stability and it's also stillness. Well, your method is stillness and it's to discover stillness. Your method is clear and it's to discover the innate luminosity and clarity of your own substrate consciousness. So the practice of awareness of awareness is much more like discovering the shamatha that's already there. 
right? Rather than generating it from scratch or generating it out of a mind that is just full of imbalances and ADHD mind and, you know, dysfunctional mind, excitation, laxity, oh, what to do, what to do. As if we, and that's what we're trying to fix it from the top down with antidote, 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 right? And an awareness of awareness, we're fixing it, we're not even fixing it, we're discovering it from the bottom up, right? By releasing all of the obscurations, everything that obscures the innate stillness and the innate luminosity of your own substrate consciousness. And discovering in a way that your substrate consciousness has already achieved shamatha. You know, I speak with a little bit of jest. So, as we have very clearly developmental and then very clearly discovery modes to practicing shamatha, and then gradients in between, settling the mind in its natural state, right in the middle, but more on the discovery side, frankly. Mindfulness of breathing more in the middle, perhaps. Uh, in a similar way, and I, you, you already know what I'm about to say, you already know it to be true. So I'm just telling you what you already know. And that is, in terms of the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness, we may feel, well, I really, some people actually do feel, I don't, I, don't th I don't think I'm really a very loving person. I'm not one of those warm and affectionate and kind-hearted people. I know there are such people and I admire them, but I am not one of those people. I'm much more of an intellectual, very business-like, mm, you know, and so I just, I don't really find that within. So, okay, well, I, and this is a quality I want to cultivate. So how can I cultivate that which I don't have? Okay, well, this is, okay, fair enough. Fair enough, you've not achieved the boundless loving-kindness, so here's how you cultivate it. And then we go through the practices. We'll cultivate it for yourself. And now bring this forth towards your a loved one. Maybe, you know, a loved one. And then it, and so forth. And we cultivate it step by step until eventually through the cultivation, we cultivate it and it becomes boundless. There's one approach and it's worked. It's worked. In some practices, I've not taught this, but they're legitimate practices. It really comes down to reciting, they call them slogans, oh, that's not a nice word, but reciting phrases. So not going into the whole scripts and the detailed kind of guided meditations that I have, but in some practices, it will be simply going into meditation and simply reciting phrases like, uh, may, all, may, may we all, I like that better than all sentient beings, may we all, may we all be free of ill will, may we all be free of mental affliction, may we all be free of physical pain and distress. May we all be well and happy. May we all be free of ill will. And just going through it, just through it, time and again, just going through. And then through these thoughts and through that aspiration, cultivating, cultivating, and eventually, eventually it just comes spontaneously, right? That's a developmental approach, right? But, but now we know there's another approach. Tap into the depths of your own awareness and you may find blessing. Blessing not coming from some mind-to-mind transmission from somebody outside of yourself who is wonderfully compassionate. It's not horizontal. It's not horizontal from the Buddha. It's not horizontal from the Dalai Lama. It's not horizontal from your own teachers. It's not this way. It's vertical. It's coming from the depths of your own awareness and finding that as you release the obscurations that do obscure your own innate loving-kindness, your own innate compassion, your innate sense of genuinely caring about yourself and, and very much other people, other sentient beings. Finding as the veils of obscuration lift, it just flows, 
spontaneously and quite surprisingly on occasion. And I've heard quite a number of people have this experience to varying, de to varying depths where they, d they felt quite clearly this was not something I cultivated, 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 and then it came out. This is where I was just releasing, 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 and it came out. And it's coming out of the depths of your own being, and it's yours. It's yours in the most innermost way. Is it possible, and I think this is what you're really asking, is it possible to so simply remove, but more by the process of discovery, more by the process of elimination rather than generation? Is it possible to eliminate and eliminate that which obscures, that stifles, that muffles, that muffles the innate spirit of caring, of loving kindness, compassion, to remove that until almost as if digging into the sand and then finding you've just dug into an artesian well and seeing the water flow. Is it possible to so-called cultivate, but it's more discover, loving kindness by just allowing this aspiration which comes with a feeling and with an emotion? Is it possible to unveil that until it starts to flow spontaneously and then just keep on moving back, that is moving away anything that, that obscures, allowing it to flow more and more unimpededly and resting your awareness in relaxation, in stability, in clarity, in that flow of loving-kindness that's coming up spontaneously. Is that too a legitimate way to practice the meditation of loving-kindness? And you know the answer. Of course, yes. We find the parallel in this. Good, our time is, it's a lovely, ah, if it's a big juicy question, we'll wait until tomorrow. If it's short, we can do it tonight. But to end on this note, uh, just recall something I know, I know you've, you've read and you probably had teachings on in the past. This rather extraordinary statement by Dujum Lingba in the Vajra Essence, when he's referring to bodhicitta, bodhicitta. And he's speaking of this, really the wisdom practices, but they go beyond the duality of wisdom and skillful means, the practice of Dzogchen, where you're going right into this innate mind of clear light, right into Rikpa, right into your Buddha nature, right? And, and ascertaining it, identifying it, ascertaining it through your own experience, this, the, really the ultimate ground of your own awareness, the primordial ground of your own awareness. And the question in, is posed in this dialogue, or it's one of the series of dialogues taking place within this treatise, this dharma, is if one taps, to, taps into that depth, beyond your psyche, beyond the substrate, and beyond realization of emptiness alone, taps into that depth of primordial consciousness. The question was, is it necessary to cultivate bodhicitta in addition to that? To complement it, to balance it out? Do you need to look elsewhere for the, to cultivate bodhicitta? And the response is, is almost sarcastic. It's almost sarcastic. It's almost ridicule. And it's, it was, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, if you have, if you have an ocean before you, should you look elsewhere to a little cup if you're looking for liquid? Right? You have tapped into the, the ultimate wellspring of relative bodhicitta. You've tapped into that out of which bodhicitta as this aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. You've tapped into that from which it arose. So to think that you should look elsewhere to cultivate bodhicitta, he says almost, he virtually said, this is hilarious, this is ridiculous. And any other way, and then he actually hammers it in a little bit. He said, compared to your realization of bodhicitta that arises when you tap into ultimate bodhicitta, 
And this is a different context, because we know realization of emptiness is also called ultimate bodhicitta. It's a Dzogchen context now. It's not realization of emptiness. It's realization of that which Songkhaba and Padmasambhava agree is deeper. Innate mind of clear light. He said, compared to the bodhicitta you're tapping into or realizing by means of realizing rikpa, these conventional methods of thinking of all sentient beings as being your mothers and recalling their kindness and, and then generating the desire to repay their kindness, he said these are just contrived, they're conceptual. They're nothing more than the, the just a conventional or relative kind of love that are, you know, just ordinary. It's superficial. Something contrived, artif an artifact. Now later, he comes right back to him and said, oh, it's a very good thing to do. You know, so it's all by context. He's not ridiculing the cultivation of the four measurable. He's not ridiculing the cultivation of bodhicitta by means of bodhicitta meditations. He's not doing that. But he's saying, if you've realized that from which bodhicitta springs, then you don't need to go back and pretend as if you don't have that realization, look for it someplace else, as if when you're cultivating it, the source of the cultivated bodhicitta is going to be something other than the source you've already realized. That's what he's really saying. Okay? So I think the short answer to your question, with a modification of the way you phrased it, is, is it possible when you find that loving kindness simply starts to flow of its own accord? Is it possible to nurture that? Is it possible perhaps even to achieve shamatha in that without bringing to mind appearances of people, sentient beings, this type of sentient being, that type of sentient being? Is it possible to deepen and deepen and deepen the loving kindness, perhaps all the way to shamatha, by simply resting in the flow of authentic loving kindness? The answer is yes. Okay? We'll have Malcolm's question tomorrow, if it still lingers, it may very well, but not tomorrow, day after tomorrow. But I think that was a very nice end, note to end on. So hopefully that will launch you into a full day of practice tomorrow that will, how would you say, bring a very focused heart and a warm mind. Right? That we blend the two. Right? Focused mind, open heart. Open mind, focused heart. Good. <laughs>